us up. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together. Ask that it would be a blessing and be an honor to you. And ask for grace in this conversation. Uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I might as well just put these on. So, is that where they are? So, I want to tell you a story about a kid. Uh, this kid was uh, probably six years old, maybe seven years old. Uh, lived in uh, Denver, Colorado, 5305 East Atlantic Street, the 1960s, say 68, 69 or so. Kind of a tumultuous time. Um, I think he was a pretty good kid. Like his mom thought he was a good kid. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> he had four older sisters. Okay, that's sacrilege to put it up there. You know, that's okay. Um, it's like a diet. <laughs> um, so he, his sisters said, you know. They, they, I don't know if abuse is such a bad word today, but they, they took it out on him, right? Because he was the youngest, and especially the one right next to him, she was the princess, and he was born, and you know she's no longer the princess, so that was a problem. So they had these five older sisters, late 60s, and uh, this particular torture I'm going to describe to you was not really intentional on their part. It was just kind of something that happened. So they come home from school, and somehow they're talking about the speed of light in school. You know how kids are, right? So the teachers tell them all about the speed of light and how fast it is and stuff. And they're trying to explain it to this little kid, right, this little brother. And they're like, it's so fast, you can't turn off the light and get to your bed. <laughs> well, he's a male, right? So he's like, well, yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty sure I can. Like, I don't think that's a problem, okay? I can do it. And they're like, shut You know, they hit him or not. Shut So... My kid, when he finally gets to, to bed, of course, he's got to turn the light off, right? So he turns that light off, and he's in that bed. And he must have done that a hundred times that night. Boom, goes the switch. Boom, he's in the bed. I think I, made it, I think he made it that I think I made it that time. I think I got it. Now his mom came in at one point. And said, what, what are you doing? What is happening? Like, what are you? Nothing, Mom. It's okay. So, of course, the next day, he has to report back to his sisters about how it went, right? And they're like, no way. And he's like, yeah, I think I did a couple times. Well, not every time, but a couple times. I'm pretty sure I made it, you know? So, the reality is, kind of looking back on that with a, a basic sense of Newtonian physics, um, I don't think I made it. I'm pretty sure I did okay? Even as fast as I think I am, I'm pretty sure... I didn't quite make it, okay? So what happened there is this human impossibility bumps up against this Newtonian physics. And it's just not going to happen. As, as a human, I'm not going to bust that. So we're moving into a story here where, again, we have a human impossibility bumping up against physics, if you will, okay? As a human, I'm not walking on the water. It's not happening, Okay? There's just, the surface tension is not going to hold it, and you're just going down. That's just all there is to it, okay? And yet, we read this story as Christians, and we're on it. Because we believe that what happened in that moment was a divine possibility, not a human possibility. We believe that something supernatural happened there, because Christ wasn't just another guy, okay? So what we have is we've been going through these signs of Christ's uh, Messiah, of him being a Savior, of him coming for us. We've been going through these signs. And what we have here is a kind of a different sign 
The other signs at least had some purpose. I'm going to turn some water into wine. People are going to drink the wine. The guy's blind. They're going to give him his sight back. People are hungry. They're going to feed him. But this sign right here is a sign of raw it's just a it's, a, it's a power, it's a, here it is. This is who I am. And it's a sign that could try to, to try to shatter our view of what's going on. And I think it was intended to shatter their view. It doesn't have a social purpose to this. He's walking on the water. It's, oh, it's a, it's a way of transportation. No, it's more than a way of transportation. It's a, he's saying something to who they are. So look at the context here in the text. Uh, Jesus feeds the, the 5,000 in the first 15 verses, and they're like, oh, sweet. You're another Moses. Anytime we're hungry, we can use you. Jesus, you can be our tool. We'll just use you. You give us stuff all the time, and we'll make you king, and you can feed us just like Moses. And Jesus is like, no. First of all, Moses didn't feed the people in the wilderness. I did. And secondly, I'm not here to be used by you for your little thing. And he leaves. He's gone. He's out of there as they try to make him king. He pretty much just disappears, right? Into the wilderness. Disciples, they get in the boat. They sail to Copernicum. Four miles away, Christ is gone. And then all of a sudden, out on the water, they see him walking to them. And it's, so it's this mark of, you're a human like Moses. We can use you. And then there's this other part of the chapter from verses 21 forward to like 63 where he begins to say, no, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm not that. I'm something different. And there's this whole teaching about, I am the bread of life. Okay, Unless you come to me and eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. They're like, what? You're going to eat your flesh? You're going to drink your blood? What are, you, what are you talking about? And he pushes them. And it's this divine power miracle in the middle that begins to say, no, I'm not just a guy. I am God in the flesh. As Christians, you believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That he is one in essence and three in persons. That Jesus is fully human and fully God. And this miracle sticks that right in your face. And you have it's hard to go around it. It's hard to move around this miracle here and this sign. He's telling you something incredibly powerful. So he's not another Moses. He's something radically greater, if you will, than Moses. All right. So when we get to the text here, it says, So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and making his way toward the boat, and they were terrified. Okay? Uh, that scene is terrifying. People don't walk on the water. That just doesn't happen. We try to get pictures of this, you know, and this is a, it's a not Rubens, it's a Rembrandt. Rembrandt, yeah. And all the ones I looked at were so cheesy. Who's this guy walking on water? We can't even portray it because it's so intense, right? Here he comes and he walks on the water and he's terrifying to them. So what is happening? Karl Barth has this really interesting thing in his commentary on the Romans where he talks about the world that we live in, the world of the flesh, the world of the body, the world of going to get donuts, and the world of buses, and the world of work, and the world of going to the bathroom. It's just this earthly world we're in. And then he talks about this divine world, the world of God, the world of the angels. And there's some way in which these two planes of existence come together, and the one slices into the other and makes itself known into that. 
where the natural and the human and the creation is visited, if you will, by the divine, and there's this cutting. And last year we went through the Gospel of Mark, and you notice three places where there was this cutting into this plane of reality. Let me just read Bart for you, because I think he says it better than I do. This is the Gospel and the meaning of history. In the name of Jesus, two worlds meet and go apart. Two planes intersect. The one known, that's our world, and the unknown. The known plane is God's creation. Follow that line of union with him, and therefore a world of of flesh, needing redemption, a world of men and of time and of things and of our world. This known plane is intersected by another plane that is unknown, the world of the Father. The point on the line of intersection at which the relation becomes observable and observed is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the historical Jesus, born of the seed according to the flesh. The name of Jesus defines the historical occurrence and marks the point where the unknown world cuts where it tears into it. And so, you know, that famous C.S. Lewis thing where you can say, well, Jesus was a lunatic, he was a liar, or he was a prophet. I'm asking you today to recognize, if you believe that he walked on the water, that he turned uh, the water into wine, if you believe these things, and ultimately you believe in the resurrection, you're believing that he is God in flesh, and that he has cut into our existence, and he's marked us in a way. So, we did Mark last uh, spring, right? And there were three points in the Gospel of Mark where the word for to tear or to cut or to rip is used, right? So that Mark 10, Mark 1 opens with it, the sky is torn open. And God looks down and says, you are my beloved son. How do you want to know what's going on? You are my <laughs> beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the end of the Gospel, in Mark 15, as Jesus dies, the veil of the temple is torn from the top to the bottom, which the presence of God is open to us, right? We're now able to move into the Holy of Holies. And the highlight of the whole gospel, one of the highlights of the whole gospel is in 9, when, he's, when they go up and there's the transfiguration on the hill, and the sky is torn open, and the voice comes out and says, uh, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. Of all the three, walking on the water shouts, listen to him, and yet most assuredly he is beloved, and most assuredly the Holy of Holies has been open to us. See, I think the walking on the water is what I like to call the divine... Does anybody want to be shushed? You ever been shushed in a real situation? Like, shush can be funny, like, like, like in, uh, what is that, uh, Austin Powers? But it can be funny. But the real shush is kind of annoying, right? When you're just someone's like, nobody likes that. Nobody likes that because we're humans. We're strong. We're powerful. But this is a divine shh. Oh, Jesus, you can give us food all the time. We can use you. You can be our little, you know, we'll put you on our dashboard in our car. Da -da -da. We love you, Jesus. We can use you. And God's like, shh. The walking on the water is like, shut up. Just listen to him. Pay attention. The moment you think you have Jesus under control, the moment you think you get it, is the moment you're probably lost. Because he is so beyond what we can ask or think or even expect or understand that you can control him in some way. You, you're lost. Because that, that's just not going to happen. Jesus is God. Right? He's God. 
Is that a topic? I don't know. All right. So, as reading one of the commentaries that Matt gave, just kind of keeping in mind, because these commentaries won't stop straightening out, which is good. Uh, when Jesus appears walking on the water, John's language suggests that the disciples experience a theophany, which is a visible presence of God. They see Jesus as God. Water is traditionally a symbol of chaos over which God alone has power. When Jesus walks on the sea, it becomes apparent that he, like God, can calm the sea. Think about the sea. It's kind of hard in Plymouth Springs, Colorado. Think about that. But there's a certain terror to the water, isn't there? There's a certain terror if you're out in the ocean or if you're in a storm or something where you're just going to be consumed up to it. So traditionally, calming of the water, controlling the water, is a sign of power, of divinity, of greatness, right? And that's what God is doing in you, okay? This is a declaration of Jesus' divinity. One of my favorite verses out of Titus goes something like this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, that's Christ, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. See, I don't need a human Savior. I don't need a big brother. I don't need an example. I don't need something that I can kind of look to. I don't know. See, walking in the water, that's a miracle, right? But transforming my heart, that's an exponentially greater miracle. The way God turned me from what I, I mean, it looks like this kid's a pretty nice kid, right? But come on, Kim's been marrying me 35 years. She knows. She knows the darkness of my heart, the brokenness of my heart, the things that I worship, the things that I put in, the things I want, the things I, ugh, I don't even want to share all my brokenness with you. Okay? But God turns that heart. He's turning that heart. He's called me. He's chosen me. He's made me his own. That's an incredible miracle. That's a greater miracle than walking on water. If you know your own heart, you know I'm telling the truth. Okay? You know I'm telling the truth. Amen? Amen. No, that's right. <laughs> All right. So the greatest of news moves us from the greatest human possibility, which is religion, to the impossible possibility of God. See, the greatest possibility, the greatest human thing you could do is kind of work yourself around and transform yourself and become a good person and do something to please God. And that's the most dangerous thing you can do, right? That's dangerous because it, it inoculates you into thinking that you're righteous, that you're good, that you're okay. And you might just stop. But Paul says the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. In other words, the law teaches us that we can't do that, that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot be righteous ourselves. And once we get to that, once we come to the end of what we can do with our power, we come to this line at the end of religion, and beyond it is the frontier of grace. That's where life is. That's why people, when they look at the church, they look at it, if they don't understand that, or if the church doesn't understand it, they look at it and go, Ugh, I know I can't be righteous. I know I can't do good stuff. I don't want to try. It sounds boring. But it's stupid. Because they haven't ever gotten to the end of their own capacities, been broken, dissolved, and made new in God, and living in this massive amount of 
I never want to relive the other things because it sounds boring and stupid and I'm terrible at it. I am so excited to live in grace. I'm so excited to be forgiven, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be washed by the blood, to be changed, to be renewed, for our relationship to be built in Christ, to get to know her more and more and more and more over these years. And that's a picture of getting to know God. I'm so excited about the things that God does in us, but I'm definitely not excited about religion. So here's kind of my version of, of Karl Barth on this and, and Karl Barth's version on this. Uh, do you ever wake up with your brain going, I do. Like some people wake up in a fog, but about, I wrote this at about 3.30 this morning. I don't know if it makes any sense, but I sounded great at the time. <laughs> I wake up and I start writing stuff. So here it is, okay? <laughs> We come to the line, to the frontier of our human possibility, and we collapse. And we embrace the impossible possibility of the divine possibility. Sounds like we're talking about. Stole it. We come to the line, the frontier of our human possibility, and we collapse. And we embrace the impossible possibility of the divine possibility. Here's the way Bart said it. We are able to see that the last and most inevitable human possibility, the possibility of religion, even in its most courageous or most powerful variety, is, after all, no more than a human possibility. And such, it's a limited possibility. See, my human possibility, I couldn't beat the light switch to the bed. That was just a human possibility. You can't be good enough to save yourself. That's just a human possibility. But you don't need a human possibility. What you need is a divine impossibility. You need something just to cut into this world. You need Christ to be able to walk on the water. You need him to be able to turn the water into wine. And ultimately, you need him to be able to resurrect the dead. Right? Amen? Amen. Beyond the humanism which reaches its culminating point in religion, we encounter the freedom which is ours by grace. Grace, however, is not another possibility. Grace is the impossibility which is possible only in it's only possible to be forgiven, to be washed, to be cleansed, to be saved in God. And that's so exciting. All right. You guys should be excited about the last call. So that's good. <laughs> so let's go a little bit to the little bit to the text. Okay. Um, oh, you know, I didn't read the, let me read the second one because this is funny story too. You write good things in your book every morning. Jesus walking down the water means to shatter their religious conceptions and possibilities. He means to take them to a whole new place. They are to be redeemed and forgiven and renewed and born again through his life, death, and resurrection. Amen? As Karl Barth would say, as Christians, we stand on the other side of the last human possibility, the possibility of religion. All right, now to the last card. So there's this phrase, I am, do not be terrified. So Christ comes to them on the water, and it's and this is horrible with, with Matt here and Hampton here because these guys are like biblical scholars, right? And I'm going to tell you what I think something about the Greek, and they're going to be like, "That's awesome," but whatever. <laughs> it is translated, "It is I." Do not be terrified in most translations. Okay, Jesus says, "It is I." Do not be terrified. But in a different part of John, the exact same phrase is also translated, I am, don't be terrified. 
See the difference in that? And most of the commentaries say it really should be translated as I am. Because I am is a code word that for anybody that knows anything about faith should make your brain explode, right? Burning bush in the Old Testament. God coming to Moses. Hey, Moses, go set my people free. Moses going, uh, okay. Uh, who should I tell him telling me to come here? I am that I am has sent you. This is God's declaration of his name. And throughout the Gospel of John, he's going to use the name I am, not accidentally, but loaded. It is loaded. And anybody who reads the text goes, whoa. In fact, it's so loaded. What do they want to do to him when they hear him use that sometimes? They take rocks and they want to smash his skull. It's that loaded in that culture. Okay? And so I understand why we translate it in his eyes, don't be scared. But the actual translation is, I am. Do not be terrified. Okay? That's a big difference because it opens up to us this notion that the water is terrifying and that Christ can calm it throughout the whole Old Testament. All right. So, but Jesus said to them, I am, don't be terrified. I am is the great divine name ever since Moses' burning bush experience. Jesus now claims the name for himself. It is full of majesty. So God alone has the power to calm the water, to rule the water, to walk on the water, and to walk through the water. What I'm offering you today is not a impotent, uh, broken, nice guy, Jesus. What I'm asking, telling you, is that Jesus is so powerful, so strong. He is God in the flesh. Okay? And whatever the water is, he can break through that. Okay? So when you think about it, they were in slavery in Egypt, and God broke through the Red Sea and opened it, and they went from slavery to the wilderness. Later on, Matt will teach you about, and when we do numbers this summer, when they were in the wilderness, they needed water, and he commanded water to come out of the rock, which is Christ, if you can accept that. And then in the wilderness, as they moved from the wilderness to the promised land, God separates out the Jordan River and pushes back the waves of it, and they walk through the water into the promised land. This notion that God has control over this overwhelming flood that is ready to take you out is throughout the scripture. There's this flood of waters that comes into our lives. I don't know what your flood is. Might be a petty little addiction. Might be greed. Might be internet stuff. Might be drugs. Alcohol, like food. Might be you just got nasty over here. You're just bitter and pissy. I don't know what to do with this. But we all got a brokenness within us sometimes that we get overwhelmed by, right? It might just be not even you. It might be the cancer that strikes you. It might be the horror of the place you live in. It might be things completely out of control. It might be a child that's gone astray and is breaking your heart. It might be a million things. Those waters come and they have a tendency to overwhelm us. And Christ tells us in his miracle that he is there in that water. They are terrified on the, on the water and he is there. And not only that, there's a little second miracle. I don't know if you noticed that. He not walks on the water, but they're to the shore. And what I would say to you is maybe you're closer to the shore than you know. It may feel like you're out in the middle of the ocean, but maybe God 
will take you through the storm quickly. I don't know. I think Job felt like he would never get out of that storm. Okay, But we'll see how it goes. So the scripture that uh, Shelley read today, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overthrow. When you walk through the fire, you shall be burned. Nor shall the flames scorch you. I am the Lord, the Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. All right. Whatever the flood, whatever the thing that's going on, whatever's happening in your life, He can make that way through those things. And He will. Finally, there's one water that I want to talk about because of Jesus in control. And that's the water of baptism. From being a man in the flesh, broken, hostile to God, separated from God. As you accept Christ as your Lord, you move into the waters of baptism. And the waters of baptism takes you from a dead man to a whole new creation. And as that new creation, then, you become part of Christ's body. And you will live forever with Him. Listen to what Paul says. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master for him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So whether you're in slavery and he needs to take you to the wilderness for a while. <coughs> And you're in that wilderness, he makes, takes you through the water into the promised land. Whether you're stuck in this whole flood of waters that seem to be raging around you, he's there, and you're closer to the shore than you think. Or whether you want to be part of his family, part of the church, part of the body of Christ, and be baptized into that, it's awesome. And it's this divine miracle. So, dot, dot, dot. More signs to come. I will give you a little preview, but not a spoiler. The greatest wipeout of Newtonian physics to come is the resurrection. Think about the resurrection. The biology, the chemistry, the whole thing. How does that happen? That's awesome. That's okay. All right, guys. I think I don't know what's happening next because I'm just. Oh, yeah, okay, good. Someone does, so there's that.